This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is journalist, essayist, and novelist Pam Houston. She has published two novels, two short story collections, and two essay collections, the latest of which is called Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country. Deep Creek features memoir-style essays centered around the ranch Pam Houston bought in Creed, Colorado, when she was in her late 20s. Now in her late 50s, the essays offer perspective on her childhood and love of the land, her wanderlust, and her dedication to community, whether that community is made up of writers, neighbors, friends, the people who helped raise her, and the many four-legged creatures that also call her ranch home. We began the discussion with Pam Houston reflecting on the idea of destiny or providence, as she had only $21,000 to purchase land and ended up buying a $400,000 ranch. There are times when I think the ranch sort of called me to it and I was awake enough to notice even in my 31-year-old, mostly not awake state. (laughs) Um, So I saw the ranch. I was shown the ranch. I I actually almost left town because the the lady who showed me around Creed, you know, knew I had $21,000 because I had been perfectly honest. And so she showed me a bunch of $21,000 appropriate pieces of land. And I didn't want any of them. They were one acre parcels or a little shack in town or, you know, something where that would have been a reasonable down payment. And then I was just about to leave town. And I had asked her, she had told me about this ranch and I had asked her to see it. And she just kept saying, Oh, no, you know, you don't want to be all the way out there by yourself. I was sitting in the car with the map in my lap. And a very tall, rodeo buckle-wearing cowboy realtor knocked on my window and said, I hear you want to see the Blair Ranch. So they took me out there, and and I, like I said, I just fell in love. And my $21,000 represented just under 5% down, but he could see how I had fallen in love with it. And the lady who was selling it, she had lost her husband, um, was remarried, to a guy who already had a place in Creed. And, and Mark, the, the realtor, said, you know, Donna Blair is going to like the idea of you. So why don't you give me your 21000 and a signed hardcover copy of Cowboys Are My Weakness, and I'll see what I can do. And uh, so Donna sold me the ranch for 5% down, copy of my first book, she carried the note herself because no bank would have lent me any money um, and started me on the journey of the rest of my life. I mean, it, it, it's a crazy fluke, you know, that, I mean, first of all, that, that I went to Creed at all, that, that I sort of insisted on seeing the ranch and then gave up and got shown it. And then the fact that this woman, Donna Blair, was you know, was willing to take this chance that I wouldn't renege on the loan. And I think for the first many years I had it, I thought I would. I mean, not because I'm careless, but because it was impossible, the the amount of money I had to pay, because not only was it um, a huge loan, it was a short-term loan. It was 15 years. Um, so it was a crazy amount of money I had to come up with every month. And 
And I just, I, I learned how to hustle, you know, I learned how to sell myself to the magazines. I, I wrote anything anybody would pay me money for. And, uh, and then she, she, you know, she gave me a second more. She, we, we, we refinanced it later on. So it was more reasonable and I got a permanent teaching job and other things changed. But those first years were crazy trying to make the payments. So do you think of that as an act of kindness, providence? How do you wrap your mind around that? I think, I mean, it's a good question. Um, and because it became the single greatest love story of my life, because the ranch grew me up and made a responsible adult out of me, um, the way, you know, other things do for other people, um, like, you know, having children or something, uh, I, it's hard not to think it's Providence. I mean, I've had I grew up in a, in a super violent household and I can't even tell you the amount of times someone sort of walked in and saved me at the critical moment. Um, I got myself into all kinds of trouble in the wilderness trying to duplicate that childhood. And I can't tell you all the times something or someone or nature or something intervened to save me from my own bad choices. So so I I do think that was part of that life. I was living very much with my senses and my intuition open. I wasn't very smart, you know, about the world, but I did try to follow where the world was pushing me. And it was definitely pushing me toward the ranch. And then, you know, Donna believed in me. She had faith in me. She was a strong woman. And I think she saw probably a younger version of herself. I, I don't know. You know, I, I, I can't really say um, why it all happened, but, but it, there was, it definitely felt faded in some way. And, and, and yeah, I mean, sure it was kindness, but more than kindness, it was like, she wanted me to succeed at getting that ranch. And so she made it so I could, and I was never late on a payment, not by one minute, not for the whole, it ended up being like 25 years, 20 years, 22 years that it took me to pay it off. And, I was never late, not one minute late. And she used to say, she used to go into town. She she lives in Texas in the winter, but she comes to Crete every summer. And she used to say to people in town, you know, she makes those payments and on time, she used to say, because she thought she was setting herself up for, you know, a, a much more difficult ride. You you mentioned that you did experience a lot of violence in your home. Your parents were alcoholics. You mentioned many times in your book that they probably shouldn't have had children or that you weren't wanted. And so coming off of this, you wandered a lot. You found a lot of solace in the wildness. You did a lot of dangerous things, testing the limits, perhaps, as a as a response to how you grew up. How did you know what a concept of home was and how did you create that for yourself? Well, I knew it was something I didn't have. And, and the reason I know, I know that is because I can see the record of it in my early writing. You know, I can see this kind of wistful every time I use the word home, you know? Um, yet I also thought I was very happy not having one. You know, I, I loved living in my tent, I loved bouncing around for months at a time from national park to national park, you know, in between seasonal jobs. Like, you know, my natural state is motion and, and I'm happiest of all when I'm 
about to see a new landscape, when I'm when the plane's about to touch down in a place I've never seen before. So this other urge, this contrary urge to like put down roots when no one in my family had that urge was, you know, it, it took me a long time to kind of grapple with it and to understand it as a, as a competing part of me. At first, it was all about just trying to make the payments. Honestly, like the first 10 years at the ranch were a blur because I had to go, you know, every time anybody wanted to pay me money for anything, I had to go and do it. And so it resembled my other life before I had the ranch because I was running, running, running. Um, once I got a chunk of it under my belt, then I started to see how the ranch was going to work on me to change me. And, and like I said, like educate me, grow me up, you know, and I, I had, I have a lot of animals. I have horses and donkeys and Icelandic sheep and chickens and dogs and a cat. You know, I had to be responsible to them. And if I had to work on the road, I had to find someone really good to care for them. And I, I made some mistakes early on and we lost some animals because I made bad decisions about who the caretakers were. So, so anyway, you know, you dedicate your, you dedicate yourself to something like this, to, to something like keeping a ranch going um, you know, keeping animals alive in the winter, keeping the house from destroying itself in one way or another because of old plumbing or old heating or, um, you know, a washing machine that walks across the mudroom floor. And, and it's like anything you care for, you know, you become deeply invested and attached. And also there's something particular about this dot on the map for me that, you know, I had a immediate physical reaction to it when I got there the very first time and saw it. Like it just, like, I felt like I could breathe there. I felt like I could relax there. I felt like my shoulders fell away from my neck. I mean, and that happens to this day, 25 years later, like I, there's a last curve you make, you're following the river and there's a last bend that I go around and there's Antelope Park. Um, the big meadow, the giant meadow, which my place is just one little place in. But everything just feels like I'm home, I'm safe. I, when I'm snowed in there, I feel like I don't ever want the snowplow to come. It, it's, it's, a, it's a feeling of safety that I never even really knew I needed. But it's wonderful to be embraced in it. There's this idea that's embodied in your essays that you can experience life with maybe an equal amount of pain and joy and suffering and freedom and that it's both that you can hold them at the same time and you can also choose to look at one or the other. And your essays encapsulate that a lot because they might be a whole part about the joy and then another part of about the pain. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be the what I was writing, you know, the idea, the big idea that I was writing around and at and through in this book. And I, of course, didn't know that when I started. That was the idea that kind of grew out of the book. And um, there's so many reasons for that. I mean, the first being that, like, things die on a ranch, you know, like, I'm an animal lover. And, and uh, it's really, I mean, it, it's particularly hard for me when animals die compared to real ranchers, you know, who, who hate to lose their animals. And I understand that now. Like I used to think, 
you know, they were these callous dudes, but that's not true at all. I mean, everyone's super invested in their animals, but for me in particular, like I can sometimes not even read novels if the dog's going to die. And I know it in advance. I mean, that's my particular area of like sort of over the top sensitivity. And, and on a ranch, you know, not only do animals die all the time, but, but the sweetest ones die, like the ones that, you know, that you don't want to die because, because it's the law of the jungle <laughs> and, you know, the, the, the more brazen, obnoxious ones find ways to stay alive. And, so that's been a big set of lessons, and it's also been a lesson in, you know, as you say, holding the the sorrow next to the beauty of lambing season, for instance, you know. Um, the other thing, of course, is the climate catastrophe we're facing, and and my deep love of the earth, and 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 my gratitude to the wilderness for for saving me and parenting me and healing me, and you know, just trying as many of us are to, to just hold the truth that the earth is literally dying. We have killed it. <laughs> and, and how do we, you know, how do we continue to be in it and to appreciate its beauty and its majesty and all of the gloriousness of the earth when, you know, all you have to do is read one article and it seems like, you know, we might have truly doomed well, at least ourselves and our experience of the earth, if not the whole earth, a lot of people believe the earth will recover when it shakes us off her back. But, but so that, that, that combination of sadness and, and joy, you know, just seems to be the defining marker of life in the, in the time of climate change, in the time of, you know, the sixth extinction, if you, if you know that book or, or you know, whatever we're facing. And I do think that, you know, maybe that is just what living fully means, living holy or, or being grown up. I got out of my childhood alive, which was quite an accomplishment because I, I do believe looking back that my father really did want to kill me. I mean, he broke my femur, which was one thing, but I think there was a good chance I wasn't going to get out alive in one way or the other, you know, either I would turn to drug abuse or whatever. I got out alive. And so I spent a few decades just so optimistic because I felt freed from my childhood home. I felt like I had found my way to a career I love, um, writing and teaching. I had found this beautiful place to live. Um, and, and those were great years. And now that feeling of, you know, just sort of optimism and joy, I mean, it's still there. There's plenty of things to be optimistic about, but there's also this great sadness, like much more knowledge about this country and the way it's treating people, particularly now, and also just the climate catastrophe and how we seem so determined as a, uh, at least our government, not to address that currently. And, and even if we do address it, is there any hope, you know, and those things all seem like real pressures that we're facing. And my determination is to find a way to have that pure pleasure in the wonderful things in my dogs or my friends or the natural world or a hike or a trip to the Arctic, even as on that trip to the Arctic evidence is all around that, that we're in dangerous, dangerous shape. Um, I, I, I got to go to the Eastern Canadian Arctic and I had the once in many lifetime experience of intersecting the narwhal 
migration. So I was in a boat for six or seven hours, just surrounded by 800 narwhal. And that's an amazing an experience as I'll ever have. And it was glorious and, and perfect. But right there with that experience is the idea that the narwhal may be the first to go because of the shrinkage of the sea ice. They, they say it may even be harder on the narwhal than the polar bears. And the very next day after we saw the narwhal, we saw ahead of us on the boat this uh, what we thought was an island. And it was five miles by five miles. And it was this beautiful piece of ice. And it had these rivers pouring off of it. It, was, it looked like it was made out of like light blue porcelain. It was one of the most beautiful sights imaginable. Well, it was the chunk of the Greenland ice sheet that fell off in 2012, you know, still floating around up there. And there it was, this piece of ice, which is evidence of our demise, right? And it was one of the most gorgeous physical objects I'll ever see. And so it just seems like that's the lesson now, that 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 being whole means not loving the beauty one iota less, but being able to hold the idea that it's fleeting, you know, and, and maybe that was always true. And maybe I just grew up enough to see it. But it seems especially true right now with the, the climate change problem. Your parents do come in a lot. And you've mentioned this abuse by your father and the idea of maybe not getting out alive. We're told in the essays, these terrible things. And again, like holding the duality of life at the same time, you're also, you know, talk to him before he dies about the trips he's going to take. And he's, it's not that he's cut out of your life. And I'm just curious about if forgiveness played a role and in living with knowing what he did to you and continuing to have a relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, um, Forgiveness is a funny word, and 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 uh, just because I I don't know if it means that I don't have it or that I feel I don't need it. I, I, forgiveness is not what I think I have done with my parents, though it's certainly not true that I haven't forgiven them. I sort of feel, in a way, like too much like the child to forgive them, if that makes sense. Like, like I feel like what. I've tried to do and what I've tried to write my way toward in this book is acceptance of them, you know, like acceptance of who they were, of their limitations, of the fact that they were raised without love and without kindness. And they kind of did their best, you know, which wasn't that great. And, um, I mean, with a gun to my head, if someone said, do you forgive your parents? I guess the answer would be yes, more than no, but forgiveness isn't really what it feels like. It feels like acceptance. You know, um, one of the things being a writing teacher has shown me over all these years is, you know, my, my abuse and my suffering as a young person, it probably doesn't even make a five on a scale of 10, you know, like the way children suffer and, you know, the way children suffer who don't have enough to eat, the way children suffer who have, you know, seriously drug addicted parents, you know, and, and my parents were addicted to, to alcohol, you know, a sort of more acceptable drug or whatever. But, you know, the, the, the stories I've read by students in my classes, like, you know, my abuse was very suburban, you know, it was, it was very kind of middle-class abuse. And, and, and I don't mean to poo-poo it. I, all I mean is that, you know, 
we all suffer in certain ways. And, and, and so for me, you know, I was born to two people who didn't want me at all. And that sounds really sad when you say it, but it's not the worst thing that can happen. And they did in their way, free me to go out and love the earth. Like, um, they, they said, well, we don't have anything for you, so go find something else. And I did. You know, I, I found this wonderful babysitter, Martha Washington, who taught me right from wrong. You know, I found this guy, Colonel Bob, who took all the neighborhood kids camping. And, and most importantly, like I found the solace and the parenting of nature that extends to the ranch, that extends to the way I let the ranch grow me up and teach me responsibility, but also to create this safe place that I never had. So like, that's not necessarily a sad story, I guess is what I'm saying, you know, and, and I don't, I don't, I'm not bitter toward my parents. I don't resent them. And I guess that maybe means I've forgiven them. I, I'm just not sure, like there's something about that word that seems like not what I have done. It seems like I have accepted them. And uh, because if I didn't have this life, like if I hadn't had that history, there's no telling what I would be. You know, I think we become who we are as much because of hardship as because of, you know, the advantages we have. And like, would I be a writer? Would I have compassion? There was something in the last essay, Deep Creek, that intrigued me about the ghosts of the past mm-hmm. and how maybe hope is settled in time in terms of like we have to see the big picture, especially with the earth. I mean, maybe hope we need in geologic time. I had a conversation with an earth scientist that has turned out to be one of those cocktail party conversations that has followed me around and become this sort of center of my daily thought practice. And, and he said, um, you know, the future of the earth looks very grim in the hundred year frame, but in the 500 year frame, it looks pretty good. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, there won't be hardly any people here, but the ones who are here will have learned a lot. I think a, a day hasn't gone by when I haven't thought of that, you know, when I haven't thought of that conversation going deep into the ranch's history and imagining the life of the homesteaders and all the hardships they faced, you know, compared to this climate hardship we're facing. There's something in there, you know, about loving the earth every day because, because you don't know what's around the corner. And, and, and maybe we're in a time where the earth is going to shake this most difficult parasite us off her back and and go on and thrive and be beautiful in some way that we can't imagine because we're we're trained to love this version the process of living on the ranch and finding out about its history and thinking about its future i i just two weeks ago finally all the paperwork was ready to put the ranch into an environmental trust which means that you know whatever forever means as long as the United States holds together as a thing. My land won't be able to be drilled or subdivided. It's it's in a land trust. And that was a, a huge way for me to be a good steward of the land. It's something I've been working on for years. And we finally got the right amount of money and the right amount of papers and the right amount of everything together to make that happen. 
just just literally the day before I left on the book tour. So that was just another one of those moments of providence or perfect timing or craziness. I'm going to go out and talk about this this book and this ranch all over the country. And the very last, literally, the very last thing I did as I was driving out of town was um, sign all the papers on on that land trust. So. Um, and I think of a, a line that's really late in the book from an old veterinarian that, that isn't even really part of this book, but he said, where there's life, there's hope, he said to me about a dog that I was trying to decide whether to put down or not. And, and, and I think, you know, I think that's true. I think that's where we are. And I think that's where we always are, whether we, whether we know it or not. <laughs> you know, we never know what's around the corner, but as long as we're living, there's always time to make the story better. Can you read something from an author that influenced you as a writer? Yes, I can. I got so many books off the shelf this morning, but I'm going to pick one and I know which one to pick because of where our conversation has brought us. This is a book from a book called Scissors, Paper, Rock by the writer Fenton Johnson, who happens to be my dear friend who I named my dog Fenton after him. Um, And this is from late in the book. It's a wonderful book and it's not enough read. I think it's one of the great American novels. I'll say that. This is an old woman speaking at the end of her life. We fall in love, not with the real person, but with an ideal of that person as we want them to be. If our love endures with the passage of time, it comes gradually to spring from our knowledge of the real person the beloved as they are rather than as we would have them be. What is love but the intersection of memory and desire, past and future? The beloved we have known and the beloved in our hopes and expectations. But in love, something miraculous happens. In loving someone, we give them an ideal against which to measure themselves. Living in the presence of that ideal The beloved strives to fulfill the lover's expectations. In this way, love makes of us the bravest and best persons that we are capable of being. Do you want to say anything else about that? I mean, (laughs) I will only diminish it by talking about it, but I think it has everything to do with what we're talking about. You know, whether it's loving the earth or loving a piece of ground or loving a dog or loving... A, a new husband at 50, now seven years old, you know, this idea that we are creatures that love enables to be our best selves. And it's hard to love things that are dying. I, I have a, a sick dog right now. Like it's, it's hard to stay in that love when you're afraid of the, the impending loss. There's a line from a Jane Hirschfield poem I love that goes, hope is the hardest love we carry. And that's a line I've thought of over and over and over again in the writing of this book. You know, this idea that we have to still have hope. And that's hard, especially when the evidence suggests we're naive to have hope. But I do think hope enables us, as love does, to be our best selves. Can you read a passage you wrote, maybe it was tricky or hard to write or changed a lot from the first draft? The waitress brings Kyle and Maggie their beers and me, my Pellegrino with lime. And we are talking about favorite dogs or favorite bands, but Kyle is looking at me so intently with those sad, soulful eyes. The next thing I know, I'm saying, you know, there was a period of my life when I thought I might kill myself because a man I thought I loved didn't love me back. 
It embarrasses me a little to say so, but there it is. Kyle's face is some mixture of stunned and relieved, which I take as a sign to continue. I've always measured my sense of well-being on airplanes when we hit turbulence. You know, how much or how little do I care if this plane goes down? They nod. They both do know. I can remember actually willing the plane to tumble from the sky a few times because some Joe I probably could not pick out of a lineup were he here tonight didn't call or went out with one of his four other girlfriends or lied about where he was last Saturday. The girls are quiet. Even Apache has stopped licking his balls. It flashes through my mind I might be grossing them out, like in the way you don't want your parents to mention the great sex they had over breakfast. You didn't ask me to dinner, I know, so I would sit here and rattle on with my old lady advice, I continue. But I've been thinking a lot lately about how much power I used to give the men in my life to make me feel okay or not okay. There are reasons for that, ugly childhood reasons, so I try to give myself a break. I'm not a regretter, exactly. I think writers all need something to push against, and that was my thing for a long time. And yet, at 52, it seems absolutely mystifying to me I would give men so much power. It's power I don't think most of them even really want. Now Kyle is looking at me like I have crawled inside her brain. We are all silent for a while. Maggie's got a good man, is what she finally manages to say. I nod. I don't doubt it. Maggie's grief for her mom is palpable, piercing but it is not full of the shadows and confusion that come when a little girl is treated badly in a hundred different ways by fathers or father figures, that insidious, everlasting training. I don't know anything about your past, I say to Kyle, and I'm not trying to tell you how to live. Somebody could have said all this to me when I was your age. I'm sure someone did, and it would have probably just made me double down. I had to do it as long as I had to do it, chase those nasty cowboys. I smile and Kyle smiles, but her eyes never do. I'm just saying I guess there's another version after this version to look forward to because of wisdom or hormones or just enough years going by. If you live long enough, you quit chasing things that hurt you. You eventually learn to hear the sound of your own voice. Apache groans, maybe signaling the end of the conversation. So I drain my Pellegrino and reach for the check, but Kyle stills my hand. What made it change, she asks, for you? There are so many possible answers, including $30,000 worth of therapy, several new age healing ceremonies, one involving a man who set his chest on fire and another involving a dustbuster, five published books at a pre-cancer diagnosis. But I say the thing that feels first, truest, and most long-term. I realized I could make my own life, I say. I could have my own ranch. I finally realized. I could be the cowboy. Do you want to say anything else about that? All my writing life, I have tried to make the metaphor stand in for the emotion, to make the object in the world carry the emotion of the story. It's the whole basis of how I teach. And to let the scene stand in for any kind of thinking on the page or emotional contextualization. When my students read this book and see how much I talked directly at a thing, like in that passage, they're going to just scream <laughs> because I've been cutting passages just like that out of their work forever. Or I mean, not I've been suggesting they cut it, I should say, you know, because I'm always like, let the object hold the emotion. Stop talking at me. Stop telling me how you feel. And so that was a very difficult passage to write. And yet it's a passage that 
always gets talked about in reviews. Like it's, it's such an interesting thing for me. I'm still working it out. Like I, like in this book, I allowed myself to think and feel on the page directly in a way I never have before. And that was what this book demanded. And, and I'm still really uncomfortable with it because of my whole belief system and the whole way I teach. And I, you know, in two years from now, when I'm well into the next book, I'll be able to tell you how that all worked out. But it's, it's one of the most, it was one of the most interesting conundrums about this book. And because in all my past books, it's like, if there was any passage like that, it would be just like, cut it. That's the reader's work. Stop talking at them. But this book required that. It asked that of me. And, uh, and I'm still working out how I feel about it. Where do you write? I write uh, wherever I can. Um, I, I, do, I did uh, restore Bob Pinkley's cabin, the homesteader's cabin, about three years ago. And uh, because I, 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 his, his ghost is very present on the ranch. Lots of people see him. I myself have not. But I wanted to leave his cabin alone for years, and I did for 22 years. But then it was going to fall down if I didn't fix it up, if I didn't restore it. And so I did restore it, and I turned it into a writing cabin. So that's my ideal writing place. But I write on airplanes. I write in airports. I write in hotel rooms. You know, I, I write at the kitchen table. I've written almost all my books at the kitchen table. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Outside. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I spend a lot of time walking. Um, and I spend, I walk five miles a day minimum. That's been a thing I started a few years ago and I really stick to it. I mean, there's the occasional day where it doesn't work out, but at least six days a week, I walk five miles a day and I'm not really away from writing because that's actually when I do some of my best thinking. Um, I'm not sure I'm ever away from writing really. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? It really depends on what it is, who I show it to first. Um, I have a series of friends uh, who I might call in any situation. And it's it depends on the piece and what I'm looking for. Like, am I looking for someone to shore me up and say, oh, that was great. I loved every word. Am I looking for someone who's going to be hard on me? in any situation, like no matter how gloriously I've written, because I want someone to take me to task. Am I looking for someone who's gonna, who really understands how commas work, you know, so it really depends on the piece who I show it to. But uh, any number of friends, writer friends who we we exchange work when we're feeling insecure for one reason or another. How have you dealt with rejection? I mean, for me, it was honestly harder to deal with success than rejection. You know, I, I grew up in a household where I was not much liked. So rejection feels like the norm to me. In, in the case of Deep Creek, my editor really didn't like the first draft of this book, really didn't like it. In fact, I thought it would not be published for a while. Not that she threatened me with that. I just didn't think like she had an idea about what the book was going to be and I couldn't meet that idea. And I didn't know that idea until I turned in something that wasn't that idea. You know, we both were operating on an idea of my proposal, but she read it very differently than I did. And I couldn't write that book that she imagined because it wasn't my life. 
And I thought I had written exactly to the proposal and she thought I hadn't gotten within 10 miles of it. And so we had a problem and it took a long time to, to work through it, but it was good work and it made the book much, much better. Uh, even though I, I couldn't write to her idea and she couldn't quite see my idea, I kept going back in it and making it better. So I guess that's the answer. How I deal with the rejection is that I go back and try harder. And, and that's the editing process. And that's a process in general that I love. And what is your favorite word? I guess wolfhound. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest was Pam Houston, author of Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like. And on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.